I'm in a series right now, and as you know, we have a theme that usually what the Lord leads us to do here is a theme that, that will follow the entire year, which in this case is feel the passion. And everything that, that ever happens that's worthwhile in life is a result of somebody having passion. That's even true in the kingdom of God. And that's the theme that we're pursuing this year because passion is your key to a breakthrough, whether it's in business or a relationship or finance or your family or, well, even the lady with the issue of blood, her passion to get to Christ made a miracle happen that would not have occurred otherwise. And so in this series this year that we're in, I'm now, this theme this year, I'm now, I do a number of smaller series and I'm, I'm talking at this time about Nehemiah. And I've given you a number of examples of how people broke through. The text that, that I'm really hammering home every week is in Ecclesiastes 9 and 7. And it simply says, seize life. Wow, that's what you've got to do. You've got to seize it as I've explained and not wait for it to come tap you on the shoulder, look you up or ring your phone or knock on your door. You've got to seize life. When the opportunity comes, you grab it. Amen. And in Hebrews chapter 4, we've been reading with that the companion texts that tell us that we have a high priest that is in the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, that we can touch with the feelings of our infirmities. He's, he's moved by what we go through. And that word infirmities can mean needs, circumstances, situations, environment, challenges, problems, it's, it pretty much is a word that can mean all of that. And the scripture says he lived here like we did. Unlike, and I'll just say this to encourage you, all of us are flesh and we're mortals and we failed, but the one we're serving was tempted in every way like we are, been through what we're walking through, yet he did so without ever, ever falling, without ever making a mistake. Now he's ascending into heaven. And so we are told that since he knows what we go through and he's been here and lived through this himself, that we can touch him and we should therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And what that really is saying is that believers have access to resources that unbelievers do not have access to. That's a, just in a nutshell, that's what it's saying. As a sinner, as an unsaved man or woman, no matter how much you've got going for you, once you've used up your resources, be that doctors, attorneys, medical tests, insurance, retirement fund, uh, you know, whatever it may be, inheritance, family, friends, uh, bankers, uh, you know, connections, whatever your hookup may be, once you've exhausted that, in trying to resolve your circumstance, you don't have anything else to, that you can turn to. You're finished. You're done. As an unbeliever, that's it. You've exhausted your resources, and now you just wait for whatever's going to happen. But for the child of God, we're different in this regard. Once we've used all that up, we've only just kicked in. We only just got started. Now we have him we can turn to. Amen. And truth is, we can actually turn to him first, but usually we want to go through all that other stuff. That's when we find, oh, I need Jesus now. I love what the psalmist said. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. Where does your help come from? My help comes from the Lord that made heaven and earth. Boy, that, that's, that's help, baby, when he made heaven and earth. That's, that's a resource. 
So we've turned to the book of Nehemiah because these people that we've talked about moved the high priest to get involved in their situation through any number of ways, some with intercessory prayer, some with great worship. Nehemiah did so with great leadership at a time when Israel desperately needed it. In Nehemiah 2, verses 1 through 6, it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore, the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah to the city of my father's tombs that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, and I've made the point that the queen that is being referred to here is Esther. Love the way God puts the pieces of the puzzle together. Before the problem ever arises, God's already got the solution worked out. Amen. How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. I want to talk today about the key of extraordinary leadership. We've been giving you keys that can move our Heavenly Father to be involved in your life. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you will speak to us now. Help us to move, change our paradigm, our worldview, our outlook, our faith, our thoughts, whatever one may wish to call that. Just let us experience a change, a shift in our thinking that we may come to understand who we truly are and who we serve and the relationship that you want to have with us and what that means in terms of us living every day of our lives. You don't want us to live alone. You don't want us to live waiting till the hammer falls and then turn to you. You want to be an integral part, a vital part of every single day that we live. I ask you to touch us, change us, help us to grasp this revelation in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. Shout it out loud again. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, you sure look good today. Amen. Praise God. Last week, we we talked about how Nehemiah, an expendable and easily replaceable average Joe, went from being the king's wine taster to becoming one of the greatest leaders that Israel ever produced. When I say a wine taster, as I pointed out last week, I don't mean, uh, somebody help me the correct French pronunciation, a sommelier, uh, the wine, I don't mean one of those that smells the wine and said, got a, got a great nose, you know, a, a little fruity taste, you know, oak undertones. I, I don't mean somebody that does that. I mean, wine taster, I mean, you literally tasted the wine before you gave it to the king And if there was poison in it, you fell over dead, and he didn't drink it. That's what I mean. Now, trust me, you don't need a whole lot of skill to be able to die. So this is an expendable position, right? And so that's why I call him an average no-name Joe with no special skills. But what happens here is that Nehemiah is about to be launched into the greatest journey of a lifetime that a person could hope to live. Extraordinary leadership on his part 
caused him to be elevated from a position where his name didn't matter and whose consequences in terms of his life were not really essential or important from someone that history would soon forget to a man whose place in history is forever secure. For example, did you know that there there are only 66 books in the Bible? That's all there are. Out of those, only 34 of them carry the name of the person who wrote them or the name of the one about whom or to whom they were written. Nehemiah's is one of those. Only 66 books to start with, only 34 of them are personalized with a first name. Nehemiah's is one of those, therefore forever ensuring that his name will be remembered. Why? What makes his story so great? It's that God helped him. He became passionate about something that mattered to God, rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. And his passion so touched God that God made a way for him to step in to do something about it. And he demonstrated such incredible leadership principles that his story forever remains and is still studied even in the secular world as a study on how to lead. Now, I want to say this. He tapped into those resources that the high priest has available. We are supposed to do that on a daily basis. Tragically, in the church, many of us have been conditioned to believe that, as I said a while ago, you go through all of your other resources and God is the last resort. (laughs) And um, we come to him at, at the end of everything else being exhausted, and we turn to him in desperation. The truth is, is that God wants to live every day of our lives with us, with us. He is the paraclete, the Greek word for comforter, the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the paraclete. What that literally means is the one who walks right beside you. He said, you shall be filled with power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You have that power with inside of you right now. He is wanting to be active and wanting that power to be engaged in the life you live. That word power there in Acts chapter 1, if it were to be translated today, as I've said before, would be translated properly, the Greek word is dunamis. What it would be translated as is either dynamo or dynamite. Unfortunately, there are so many believers today whose lives are neither dynamos nor are they dynamite. I'm not saying that unkindly. That's just the realities of the fact. And the, the truth is, is that, that that is not what God wanted your life to be like. He didn't want you to live average without him. He wanted every day of your life to be impacting and powerful. You not to just draw from these resources in time of great trouble or disaster, but you to live in that dimension where they always exist. And I've shared this story with you before, but it comes back to mine again this morning. I had a friend when I was named, when I was just a, a teenager, his name was Lawrence. And Lawrence was extremely popular in my circle of friends because he was the only one who had a car. He had a 1957 Chevrolet. But that car made him hugely popular. Amen. And uh, so everybody wanted to be Lawrence's friend. One day, I was with Lawrence and another guy, and we wheeled into a gas station. And right there on uh, Broad Street in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and the person at the, uh, the attendant at the pumps was busy, so Lawrence jumped out and started pumping his own gas. The guy said, I'll be right with you. Lawrence said, I'll do it. You know what he did? He started pumping diesel into the tank of that 1957 Chevrolet. Do I need to tell you what happened? When he paid the guy and we got in and drove off, all of a sudden Lawrence wasn't our friend and so popular anymore. <laughs> 
that car was blowing smoke like it was fogging for mosquitoes in Cameron Parish, Louisiana. And it was making the loudest noise you've ever heard in your life. We slumped down and we got away from that car as quickly as we could. Lawrence stopped being our friend that day, which tells you about the depth of our friendship and our loyalty to Lawrence. It was the 57 Chevrolet we liked and not Lawrence. You know, the problem is, is that most believers are still running on diesel when they ought to be running on gasoline. By that, I mean you have power inside of you, but we're still living like we did before because we were conditioned in a fallen life before we got saved to believe this is the way life is supposed to be. Being translated into the kingdom of God, we now have access to power and dimensions of resources that we have never drawn from, and yet we live as though we don't. And the problem really is that we're kind of like Esther. We got saved, but we're still thinking like we did before we got saved. And you know what I'm talking about. I've said this before too, but just to bring us up to where I need to talk to you about these issues from Scripture today, I'll point out that Esther was raised as an orphan. Orphans do not have great expectations in life because they've been disappointed. And so they get what they can to survive. Suddenly she is moved from being an orphan to being selected by God's divine design, the king selects her of all of the beautiful women in all of the provinces of Babylon to be his wife. Okay, this story that I've read to you from says that, that whenever Nehemiah went before the king, that he had heard about the plight of Jerusalem. You may wonder why he had heard about it. He and Esther were both little children when they were carried away into Babylon. Their parents were killed. Now someone comes and tells him, Ezra was among that group, Daniel, all of the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and now someone informs him, well, you just can't imagine how devastated Jerusalem is. Well, he was been carried away as a little child. He'd heard he'd been destroyed, but now as an adult, they're telling him just how thorough the destruction is. The city is wasted, and he's sad because this is a city of God where God's presence dwells. And his job requires that when you go into the presence of the king, the law was, not just for him but for everyone, do not carry emotion into the throne room. The reason is, is you cannot distract the king. You were not even allowed to make eye contact with the king. You couldn't, certainly couldn't go in and, and carry sadness or you couldn't go in laughing about some joke or excited about something. You would distract him. And this man is dealing with head, uh, the, the matters of heads of state and affairs of the kingdom where he literally has hundreds of thousands of people that are looking to him. I mean, do you know that the, the king of, uh, of Persia literally filled an army of one million soldiers during those days? Think about the logistics of getting food to them, weapons. I mean, all of that goes on ships and everything else. And this, this man, you don't go in and distract him with some little joke. You don't go in looking sad either. And Nehemiah went in and he was sad and he was terrified when the king noticed it and said, why are you sad? He, I mean, he, terror gripped his heart. He knew he was going to be executed. He had distracted the king. Had it not been for Esther sitting there, he probably would have died. But the king and Esther were very close. He had selected her to be his wife. She was also Jewish and she had been telling him about Jerusalem. Now, watch this unfold. Esther is growing into this position because she has to change and transform from being an orphan who's just expecting whatever she can get out of life with no one really to look out after her except her uncle to thinking like a queen. 
That's why on that day, whenever she told Mordecai, Mordecai had said, you need to go in and tell the king about what's going on and how Haman's trying to destroy your people. She said, I can't go in. He's been busy for 30 days. I mean, there's problems in the kingdom, insurrections rising up. There are uh, uh, new invasions being planned, supply routes and all of this, and armies to be fed, a million guys waiting to be fed. Think about all of this, and ships to be built. And he's, he's got all this stuff on his mind. She said, he hadn't even come home for 30 days. He's been sleeping on the couch eating takeaway Papa's barbecue. Amen. <laughs> With a little papacitos thrown in every now and then. And she said, if I go in there and he doesn't extend the scepter to me, I'll be killed on the spot. You know her problem? She was still thinking like an orphan. What she should have said was, he chose me out of all of the women of this kingdom. I'm going to put on some Chanel number no. 5 or Gucci or Versace. I'm going to sashay in there, and he's going to go, whoa, and he's going to forget about supply routes and say, Mama, it's been too long. Come here and sit on Daddy's knee. That's what she should have been thinking. But like Esther, we still think like we did before he chose us. You didn't choose him. He chose you. John 15 says it. Jesus said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Think about that. Of all of those that could be in the kingdom, God selected you. And now then, God is going to use Nehemiah. Nehemiah is terrified. And so what happens is, is the king asks him, what can I do to, uh, to help you fix this problem? And I want to be active in that. And what the king of kings is saying to you and I, I want to be active in your life. I want to be a part of the solution, not the one you run to every time you've run out of other options. I want to be involved every single day. Amen. And Nehemiah goes with the authority of the king back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and help the Jewish people once again rediscover their divine connection to God. And the story of this man rising from obscurity to becoming one of the greatest leaders history records as ever having lived is phenomenal. Why teach it on a Sunday morning? Because some will say, I'm not a leader in a ministry. I've already stressed the reason I'm teaching this even on a Sunday morning is every one of you here are leaders today, whether you might realize it or not. Amen. I will never forget when it dawned on me that I was a leader as a young husband and father. My son Jonathan was just two and a half, three, four years old. I can't remember exactly how old. And we were actually preaching in a place called Connersville, Indiana. And back in those days when you would speak, they didn't have, you know, nice hotels and, and so forth that maybe the church could afford to put you in. We stayed in a Sunday school room downstairs in the church basement. And Jerry had gone, of all places, my wife, Jerry, to Kmart and got Jonathan a little belt. And he was so proud. He, I was praying in the, in the basement when they got back. And he came and he took his little belt and did like this and said, look, Daddy, I got a belt just like you. <laughs> I'll never forget that because at that very moment it occurred to me I was leading somebody. One of the greatest jobs as a leader is just to lead your own family. Amen. Lead your wife. Help lead your family as a mother, as a, as a wife. Amen. I'm not just talking about filling a leadership job in a church. And so we last week discussed, and God, did we have services last weekend, 
The principles that Nehemiah employed, number one, he volunteered. He made himself available. Number two, he saw opportunity where others only saw problems. And number three, he had vision and he inspired others to follow it. Today, let's talk about leadership principle number four. Where you can make a difference with your life, Nehemiah built and motivated a team. I want to tell you that in the course of your life, you're going to need somebody to help you get to where you need to go. And you're going to need a team around you. Can someone say amen? Nehemiah 2 and verse 18, read these words, and I'm going to emphasize some of these words in this passage. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's word that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. Do you see all of the use of the, the pr pronoun they? They, they. Nehemiah could not build that wall by himself. He built a team. And what is remarkable to me is the team that he built didn't come from the greatest leadership pool that existed. He took people that had been devastated, beaten down, downtrodden, and made out of them an incredible team. You need a team. And this is why in the course of your life, I want to tell you something. You have to learn how to motivate others. You're not going to get to where you need to be by yourself. But you also need to know that you can't motivate others if you don't stay the course yourself. Mm -hmm. Leaders have to be committed. And that's why sometimes people are hesitant. But you're still leading even if you choose not to be committed. You're just now setting a bad example of leadership. And somebody's going to follow that example just like they will if you square your shoulders back and choose to be a good one. You choose to be committed, others will. You choose not to be, others will look at you and they will choose not to be either. You're still leading one way or another. And leaders have to make a decision to make their lives count. We can't be like the lady who was a member of a diet club. I'm not even going to ask if there are any members of any diet clubs here today. But you can't cheat on your diet and get away with it forever. This lady bemoaned her lack of willpower. She had a meeting with her club members, and as they were celebrating how many pounds they had lost, she had gained some. And she was telling her club members that she had made her family's favorite cake over the weekend. She explained that they had eaten half of it. The family had, loved it. The next day, while they were at school and the husband was gone, the other uneaten half, started talking to her and she cut herself a slice and it was so good she cut a second one and that was so good in no time at all she had polished off the whole cake and she knew her husband and her family were going to be disappointed and so one club member asked what did your husband say when he found out about it and she said oh he never knew and another said, really? How did you keep him from finding out? She said, it was actually simple. I baked another cake just like the first one, and I ate the first half of it. And they came in, and there's half a cake, and they're not the wiser. Burp. You know? You can't be a leader and do that kind of stuff. And do you know that you can't get to where you're going by yourself either? You're going to need a team around you. The greatest athletes in the world are helpless 
before an inferior team of much less talented players than they themselves are if they are alone and aren't part of a team themselves. Consider LeBron James as good as he is. If he's on the court by himself, five good high school players could take him to task. The point I'm making is just being good is not good enough. You got to have somebody around you helping you get to where you're going to go. Anybody know the name Usain Bolt? Fastest man on the planet, Jamaican. You know the guy that Bolt, uh-huh. The lightning bolt they call him. As fast as he is, one of the races he runs is, is a relay race. Do you know that four average runners can beat Usain Bolt in a relay race if he doesn't have anybody to hand the torch off to and has to run the race by himself? You need somebody to help you get to where you're going. Oh, I'm preaching right now. You need somebody to be a part of your team. And this is why, ladies and gentlemen, you need a pastor. You need a church. This old business about me and Jesus got our own thing going, and I'm going to go wherever. Uh-uh, you need a team, baby. You need somebody there that's got your back, and they need somebody there with them that's got their back as well. I'm issuing a call today, Christian Tabernacle. It's time to take church membership seriously. Not just go when we feel like going. We need to be there because maybe it's not something we need. Somebody else may be watching us. Hallelujah to the Lamb. Why is a team important? It is because synergistically there's a multiplication of effectiveness and strength that occurs when people that are like-minded come together. Deuteronomy 32 and 30 said, we are told one will put to flight a thousand. That's pretty incredible stuff. You've got the God of glory living on the inside of you. One can put to flight a thousand. Turn to somebody and say, you don't know who I really am. Would you do that? Amen. I, I'm one of them superheroes. I'm, I'm Captain America. That's who I, I'm. I'm one of these guys. Man, I show up on the scene. Stuff happens. But you want me to really be powerful? Put me with a group of others just like me and watch what happens. Because if one can put to flight a thousand, two can put to flight 10,000. There's a multiplication of effectiveness. It is this very principle of unity, of oneness that calls the Lord in Genesis 11 and 6 to look at those building the Tower of Babel. They were building the wrong place. And in the wrong place, building the wrong, they were building a temple is actually what they were building. They were building the temple to the wrong God in the wrong place, in the wrong city, and the wrong people were building it for the wrong reasons. Amen. And do you know what? The Lord said this. Indeed, the people are one and they all have one language and this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing they propose to do will be withheld from them. Why? Even doing wrong when people get together, they're powerful. Amen. You hear what I'm talking about? And that's why the enemy wants division. I've often said the, um, the mathematical signs of God are addition and multiplication. The Lord added to the church. Amen. Multiplied the number of disciples greatly. On the other hand, the enemy's mathematical signs are subtraction and division. 
He wants to take away what you've got. He creates division. Why? A house divided against itself cannot stand. This is why our nation right now is troubled. Is because there's no longer any unity in the United States of America. People are pursuing selfish, independent agendas, and they need to once again remember what made this nation of ours great. Tell somebody you need a team. Would you do it? Who are you playing for? Which side are you on? What are you going to do with your life? Make your life count while you're here. You're not going to live as long as you think you are. Life is going to go by and it's going to be over with before you know it. Make your life count while you have a chance. Join a team and watch what God will do. Amen. That's what made Nehemiah great. He came and he sold a vision. And they said and they did and they put their hands. They decided to embrace the challenge. He led a team. And I want to point out to you, it starts, as I've said earlier, with your own family. I don't understand how people can come to church and be more spiritual in church than they are at home. Oh, you heard me right. I, 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 meant, I meant to say it just like that. I don't understand how people can be, oh, love you, Jesus, hallelujah, go home and dissect everybody in the church criticize and complain and then 15 years later wonder why their kids don't want to go to that church anymore. Am I talking to anybody right now? If there's any place you need to hold God up, it's in the home. You do it in the home, the church poor to take care of itself. Remember, you got a team that's following you one direction or another. Ecclesiastes 4 and 9 said two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. Amen. One might stand, but maybe not. But two can do better than one. But Ecclesiastes 4 and 12 said a threefold cord is not quickly broken. One of the most powerful things that I've ever realized in life is that ropes are actually made of tiny little strings. Any single string in and of itself can be snapped by any child, the weakest child, the smallest child. But twist those together and you create a rope that is so strong it can hold an elephant. It can pull a car. It, it, can, it, can, it can do so many things. And the enemy is bothered when people get together. That's why the enemy tries to constantly create division. Tell somebody near you, we don't have time for that. Would you do it right now? Amen. We're marching in the same direction. We're on the same team here. Leadership principle number five. Not only did he build a team... And I'll talk more about those he built his team from in a forthcoming lesson just in a couple of weeks. But he also stayed focused and kept the main thing the main thing. You know, you got to do that. And maybe it helped that he had a job where any particular day he could die. Think about it. He, he, you go to work in the morning, you plan on fishing that weekend. Not him. I may go to work today and somebody may have put poison in the king's wine. I might not make it home. You know, when you live like that, you know what happens? You live every day making sure you got everything covered. You know what I'm talking about? You don't, run, you don't leave anything undone. You, t you keep all business current. And you keep your life insurance paid up too. Amen. <laughs> Nehemiah kept the main thing the main thing. He didn't get distracted or by other issues. How do I know that? Nehemiah 2, 19 and 20. And when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Jeshem, 
the Arab heard of it. They laughed. Heard of what? Heard of him going back to rebuild the wall. They laughed at us. Oh, here, yeah, this is where he gets emotional. You like people laughing at you? Uh-uh. Somebody said, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's one of the biggest lies ever created. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words can hurt your spirit. They can break your heart. Amen. And they said concerning what he was doing, when they heard about it, they laughed and despised us and said, what is this thing that you were doing? <laughs> Will you rebel? Now, what's this? They're questioning his motivation now. Are you really trying to rebel against the king? So I answered them and I said to them, notice his answer. The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. That's a word to this church, arise and build. We're getting ready to do that. Amen. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Just look at your neighbor and say, keep your answer brief. Would you do that? We want to get into arguments with the enemy. Somebody questions what we're doing. We want to go, we want to turn into a defense attorney and, and explain everything, try to sell them on our position. You know, first of all, I want you to understand the judgment of other people doesn't determine God's judgment of who you are. I need a better amen than that. Don't judge another man, the Bible said. Don't judge another man's servant before his own master he rises or falls. But you start doing something with your life, trust me, folk go to questioning your motives, talking about you, laughing behind your back, you know, and you turn around and see them smiling. And you know it was you they were laughing at, amen. Come on, I'm getting real right now. And they start making you question yourself. And then you want to go into these long, lengthy explanations. One of the things you need to learn in life is to know who owns the problem. If they're questioning you and you're serving the king, you stand before him, not them. I'm preaching better than you're responding. Know who owns that problem. Now, I'll never forget, and I've said this before, I was raised, as you know, in Louisiana, and we went crabbing. And when I was a little guy, I used to love to go crabbing. We'd go catch crabs, and what you'd do is go to the butcher and get a bunch of scrawny chicken necks. And you'd take them down to one of the bayous or, or somewhere. We'd go down in Cameron Parish along those, those, those drainage ditches there that were filled with that brackish marsh water. And we'd just tie a string around one of those chicken necks and drop it into that water off one of those bridges there. And we'd just stand there, and we'd let things start moving. And you know a crab had it. And those things are so greedy, you can pick it up, and it's holding on by one pincher, one claw. Amen. And it'll keep holding on, even while you're pulling it out of the water. It's, it's dangling in midair. It's not let go. And that chicken neck is mine. I've been waiting for that chicken neck. I've been looking for it. I found it. I'm not letting go. You slip your net underneath it. And my dad brought a wash tub. And he put those crabs in there, and I watched them. They started trying to climb out. And I, I asked my daddy, Don't, aren't you going to put a lid on that wash pot? Because those crabs are trying to get out. He said, just pay attention. Watch what's going on. They don't need a lid. And sure enough, one of them would almost get out, and another one would reach up and grab it and pull it right back down. Daddy said, you don't need to put a lid on that thing. Those crabs will always make sure if one's about to get out that the others pull it back down where it belongs little good Louisiana psychology here. 
I want you to understand that's how some people are. Have you noticed that when you're on the same level they are, your friends and everything is okay? But don't get blessed too much because you start climbing up and they got to feel compelled to pull you back down. Amen. You know, who do they think they are? They start casting aspersions, questioning your motives, looking at you, denigrating your activity. <laughs> Look at that. Who do they, they got the big head. That's what they got. You know, they're proud. They're arrogant. They feel self-anointed to be the one to make sure your head doesn't get to be too, too big. You leave people like that alone. That's their problem, not yours. He answered with a one-sentence answer. Oh, I'm preaching right now. I answered and I said, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. That's what you need to do when somebody starts talking about you. Don't be distracted. Say, God called me to this. I'm not perfect. I'm going to make some mistakes along the way. But you know what I am doing? I'm at least showing up to do something. Many years ago, there was a famous evangelist named, named um, Billy Sunday. Many years ago. And he, he used to be a professional baseball player before he got saved. And he was quite a dramatic preacher. And he would preach with a lot of demonstration and, and physical activity. And one lady criticized him and the way he preached. And she did it to his face. And she said, I don't think that's very couth. It's not, it's not proper. You need to be more dignified. And... And he said, ma'am, he said, what are you doing to reach people? And she said, well, at the moment, I'm, uh, uh, and he said, that's what I thought. He said, in that case, I like what I'm doing better than I like what you're not doing. Don't allow people to question you. Amen. I mean, don't be arrogant about it. That's not what I'm saying. If people have a legitimate criticism, accept it. But just to tear you down and distract you, uh-uh. I need somebody in this building to say, I'm a child of God. Would you do that? I've got his power living inside of me. I run on, I run on gasoline. I don't run on diesel. Amen. Uh, I'm not going to get caught up in all this mess. And don't you be like Esther before she got saved or before she was actually become, became the queen. Stop thinking like an orphan. What you do is you say, I'm serving my king. He delights in me. Amen. And God's going to prosper me and we're going to rise up and do his work. The enemy will try to distract you, ridicule you, attack your motives, question your integrity. And that's on a good day, by the way. Amen. You must avoid being sidetracked by distractions. Principle number six, he refused to allow problems to discourage him. The first has to do with focus. This has to do with emotions. You either master your emotions or they will master you. That was a better statement than I heard a response to. Listen to this, Nehemiah 4, 1 through 6. So it happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria. You ever notice when people don't like what you're doing, they can't keep quiet about it. They got to go tell somebody, amen. I wish he'd get that same kind of anointing to witness and we could really do something then. But the only one time they want to talk is when they're criticizing. You ever notice? Some folks that are like that, don't be one of those, please, amen. 
And he spoke before his army and the army of his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Oh, listen to the insults here. Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they contemplate or complete rather it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish stones that are burned? Remember, Nehemiah had never built anything in his life. He was nothing but a wine taster, a, 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 an expendable individual who was tasting the wine to be sure it wasn't poison. He had no real skills. I want to tell you this. You can look in the, in the mirror and say the same thing often about yourself. But you know what causes you to develop ability? It's when you step out and say, God, use me. Don't sit and wait to fix everything in your life. Don't develop all of your gifts and then decide to be used of God. You're going to be too old to do anything then. Amen. You know, it's like they say, you know, people spend 30 years developing their gifts. And then when they finally decide to volunteer, they're too tired to do anything. Uh, roll up your shirt sleeves right where you are. Make your life count. And watch what God will do in developing your strengths and your abilities. You're not just drawing from your resources. You're drawing from God's. And today I'm issuing a challenge to every one of you. Remember this. Nehemiah was sent by the king. You are sent by the king. There are going to be problems along the way. Anytime you attempt something worthwhile, that's great. There will always be problems. You need to know that up front. The greater the, the thing is that God wants to do for you and through you, the greater the opposition you're going to face. That's an irrevocable principle of the kingdom of God. The greater the opportunity, the greater the difficulty. Look at Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 16, 8 through 9. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost for a great, say it out loud, a great, an effective door has opened to me. And what? What? Some people think that when doors are open, it means no problems. Uh-uh. The greater the door, the more hell you got to go through. More trouble you're going to face. More demons are going to get upset. You see, the enemy doesn't fight if the door is closed. It's when the door opens that he becomes concerned. And the bigger the door, the more reinforcements he calls in. Paul said there's a great door, therefore there are many adversaries. That's the first principle here. Second principle is this, that if you're in the middle of a fight, the fight of your life right now, you must be on the verge of a great breakthrough. A door must be open somewhere. Oh, I need somebody in the house to stop complaining about the fight and start looking at the door. It's really a matter of focus. You going through hell right now? Has life been a struggle? You're on the verge of a breakthrough. And the bigger the problem, the greater the breakthrough. Oh, I feel something working in this building right now. I feel a prophetic anointing slipping into this place. And I want to say that I think that God is telling somebody, you've been focusing on the problem, but if you'll look over the heads of the problem, there's a door I'm getting ready to lead you through. Tell somebody my breakthrough is coming. Would you do it? My breakthrough is coming. I can't get off of that. My breakthrough is coming. 
I can't leave it alone. This is a word to somebody. My breakthrough is coming. Hallelujah. Let me tell you what you need to do. Instead of standing in prayer lines, getting everybody to pray for you, call your friends when all hell breaks loose and say, come over and let's have a party. And when your friends show up and ask, well, what's the celebration about? What's the occasion? You get a raise, you get a promotion, you receive a million dollar inheritance. Did you win the lottery? Say, no, all hell broke loose. Hallelujah. It means I'm on the verge of a breakthrough. That's what's happening. Somebody in this room right now. It's time to partay. You've been walking through a rough place. Your breakthrough is here. Hallelujah. Galatians 6 and 9. But I will listen to this. Listen to the word of the Lord. Let us not be weary. And I love this in the King James. And that's why I've gone back to the old King James. Let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Somebody get the smelling salts. Wake up and don't faint. Hear what I'm telling you right now? You've been having the struggle of your life. Look at your neighbor and say to somebody, don't be weary. Would you do it? Don't be weary in well-doing. Due season is just around the corner. Mm. In due season, in due season, in due season, somebody in this building needs to take the next three words for themselves. We shall reap. Only you need to personalize it. Mm -hmm. Somebody needs to say, I am going to reap. Amen. When? When in due season? I don't get to look at God's calendar. It may be today before the day ends. It may be next week. It might not be for another year or two. All I know is God's going to do one of these and divine reversals getting ready to happen in my life. Put your hands like this. Come on, humor me. And look at your neighbor and say, this is the way it looks right now. But it's getting ready to do this right here. I may be on the bottom today, but I'm headed to the top. In 24 hours, God can change mm, everything. I love that text from 2 Kings. Tomorrow about this time, you don't know what's coming your way right now. Breakthrough is coming. Tell somebody don't faint, don't faint, don't faint, don't faint, don't grow weary. Stay the course. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. Hello. They tried to insult Nehemiah. Who are you? Just a feeble Jew. Nobody. Expendable. The only skill you got is you can drink wine with poison in it and fall over dead. That's all you know how to do. Amen. Made fun of him. 
And they ask him to come down and meet with them to justify what he was doing. Silly old us. We let people sit in judgment on us. They send us a summons. And we go off to appear in their court. They don't even have the authority to send you a summons. Who are they? Hello. Amen. What I'm trying to tell you is Nehemiah 6 and 3. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Tell somebody I'm not stopping. Would you do it? I'm moving ahead. I'm completing my assignment. God is on my side. The king sent me. I may not know what all that means right now, but God is for me. And if God is for me, who can be against me? Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you?